Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Game of Thrones on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And we just watched season two, episode six, titled The Old Gods and the New. Uh, I thought this was a pretty good episode. What'd I thought think? this was a pretty good episode myself. <laughs> All right. Uh, I like, I, I like, okay, this is our first encounter with the wildlings in their home territory. Um it was interesting to see, I guess, an episode where Asha was featured in it as well. Yeah. So we can kind of get a little bit more where she's coming from. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And there's just a lot of good stuff around, like, the tension of this guy returning home and, uh-huh. you know, being just a real shit yeah. um, to all the people there who were his, like his brothers and his family uh, for so many years. And he returns trying to prove himself. And I think he makes a mess of things, but we'll see. Yeah, I like that. Like you said, the first the first meeting of the wildlings after hearing so much about them was mm-hmm. was interesting. Uh, I thought the uh, the the scuffle in the streets of King's Landing yeah. was was really well done too, and a nice little uh, action piece and uh, a good character moment for some people who haven't really gotten character moments uh, or many of them thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, and continuing to see the relationship between like uh, Arya and, and Tywin and uh, Jacken's little uh, miracle that he worked uh, <laughs> taking uh, Amory Lorch down was was really good. Uh, so I, I feel like that this still is has got the feel of a setting, you know, moving pieces around for for a uh, an ultimate conflict, but it mm-hmm. had a little bit more action and. Uh, uh, some some nice some nice character introductions, uh, and that's what elevated above slightly uh, last week. Which again, not a terrible episode. Sure. Um, anything else to say about it, or should we get to the recap? Well, one thing I want to say is uh, rest in peace to Roy Dotrice. Uh, yeah. I got lots of emails saying that I killed Roy by. <laughs> you did, you did. It's unfortunate, but you did. Uh, it's surreal because when I woke yeah. up, it was like you know, I one of the first things I do is I I, I have a, a news aggregator and I start scrolling through it, and because of my interest, that was towards the top, and I'm like, holy shit! I just mentioned this guy and. And uh, his his importance to Game of Thrones and expressed skepticism about him being able to make it through to the end of and then like ah I felt like I I, I had the power of life and death. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean not to make light of it, you know he's but the guy was ninety four years old. Ninety four. He, he lived a very long, very long and accomplished life. life I, yeah. I read his biography. He was the the husband of one woman. Uh, she died uh, in two thousand six. He did not remarry. He's got three daughters. Uh, he's been uh, really. He was eighty eighty, and he didn't remarry. I mean, is he really living his life to the fullest? I I I, I think he would say <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, he's he's waiting. Well, anyway, um, gotta you know my my. My tendency is always to turn things into joke, and the more I'm uncomfortable yeah. uh, and 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 uh, awkward about it, the the stronger that tendency gets, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. Hopefully, not today. Yeah, uh, but thought, he seemed like a really cool guy. Like I didn't, yeah. I, I did not recognize that he. Uh, I loved the the film Amadeus. Uh, he played uh, Wolfgang uh, Mozart's father. Okay. I was just reading through, like, st- looking for roles that I recognized him in. He's he was he had a he he had a, a really long and successful career, and it seemed like he was a very fulfilled guy. So, uh, don't feel bad for him, Valor, Morghulis, and all that. But uh, you know, we'll we'll miss you in uh, Winds and Dream for sure. We will. I don't know who can possibly replace him. Yeah. Um. 
it's going to like I yeah it, it it's it's really weird again this is uh, Game of Thrones continues to <laughs> break norms I've I've n- never heard of a situation where like uh, uh in a book series uh, our author gets switched in the middle of it or um, a narrator yeah. rather it seems like they kind of keep those consistent but uh, yeah, yeah we'll miss him and uh, we will first casualty of Winds of Winter <laughs> yeah uh, he won't be the last judging by this episode though no um. It's a lot, a lot of people dying in Game of Thrones. Uh, before we get into the episode proper, and oh god, I'm coming out of a, a death dedication. I, I feel like Casey, Casey, Kasem. Like I, you know, I, I got to do this upbeat promo. Yeah, now you got to go into Ace of Base, all I, that I, she I'm, wants. I'm, 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 I'm trying to promo bald move out of a goddamn death dedication. God, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. Moving on to happier news, we've had this secret project we've been working on the past month. We recorded a podcast for all of the episodes for Stranger Things on Netflix season one uh, to get ready to do coverage for season two. Um, and we released all eight of those things out on Monday. They're nice and snappy. Uh, there's no feedback. It's a great way for you to catch up uh, to the series and be all ready to go for season two, which drops next weekend. Uh, we're going to have the preview podcast for season two this Friday. So if you'd like to send in some feedback to that, listen to the podcast at Stranger Things at BaldMove.com. Also, we started Mr. Robot coverage of season three last week. Also, we're starting coverage of Walking Dead season eight this weekend. Uh, and if you're a longtime listener, you know that uh, for club members, we do a live watch where we watch The Walking Dead with cameras on us, and there's a way to sync up the feed so you can watch us live, and we kind of do a, a Mystery Science Theater 3000 type of deal. For club members, speaking of club members, we also have the next chapter of The Wolf Among Us, the Telltale video game series that we do a monthly Let's Play through. Uh, I think that's all of the stuff. Uh, we have a, ball, a first-run bald movie next week, Suburbicon. The uh, the George Clooney directed, Coen Brothers written, Matt Damon starring, fifties era. I don't know what the hell it is, but those names alone attached have me intrigued. Uh, that's what's going on at baldmove.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, let's get into the recap. Yes, let's do. We start off in Winterfell. Uh, It's under attack by Theon, and Maester Lewin is scrambling to fire off a a raven before he's captured, and he, he does that. And then Theon tells Bran, look, I've taken your castle. Bran refuses to yield, but then Theon sort of talks to him like a child here it's it's really patronizing you have no chance make your time (laughs) i guess so uh he so he eventually convinces brand to yield and i I guess the people outside are a little more stubborn including um 
Roderick, who is dragged in and insults him by spitting in his face, mm-hmm. and his men demand that he kill him, so he goes through with it over everyone else's protests. Yeah, it's uh, it's a hell of a scene. Um, yeah. you know, it starts with the uh, you know Maester Lewin barely getting the Raven off to rob. Um, we see you know up jumped Prince Theon taking the castle. It's open question whether his heart's still in it because there's a lot lots here where it just doesn't seem like. I have a feeling that Theon feels like a man in a dream. Where he's going through these motions and he doesn't understand why, like he he wishes he could stop but he can't. Um, yeah, there are several moments in there where he reconsidered his plan. Yeah, um, he he thinks about is this really what I want to do? And it always comes back to him trying to prove himself to his family. You know, yep. trying to become Ironborn in the way that his family would have him be. Um, and, and it's unfortunate because he's stuck between two families here. Right. Uh, and it, it it shows it just really sells the betrayal like in several different yeah. ways. You have Sir Roderick who's spitting in his face and said, "I should have put that sword in your belly instead of your hand." Uh, mm-hmm. But then you got Bran who just like, yeah, what, what, why? You know, like he <laughs> can't even grasp that. Like, I my brother sent you away to get help, and now you're taking my home. Like, uh huh. Um, and both ways are are equally effective, showing this is a confusion and pain and disbelief versus the the surly, uh, you know, anger uh, of the, the betrayal. I thought it was great, and also it's a good character moment for Theon, whose adoptive father Ed. Eddard uh, taught him to the demand his past his sins. AKA got to swing Ned. I mean, it, holy shit, this guy. So many yeah. names. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, that he's got to cut his head off and he's not very good at it. No, he needs a bigger sword. He needs ice or something, uh, or maybe sharpen that thing. Maybe, maybe or Sir Roderick. Arms. Maybe Sir Roderick told him that taught him wrong. Maybe that was Roderick's <laughs> point. Like, look, my neck is so thick. Right. You're going to look real dumb trying yep. to slice through my neck. <laughs> Pay the iron price. Try the boiled leather price, you pup. <laughs> um, and it, the, the, before, I don't know yeah. who this actor is that played Sir Roderick, but Jesus Christ, he's playing it fierce. Like, he's he in full snarl um, until, like, everyone's losing their shit right before Theon kills him. He looks back at Bran and says, uh, don't mind, I'm going off to see your dad, which I, I don't know whether I'm just super tired uh, and out of my element that, when I watched this morning, but that I'd actually briefly choked me up. Like, huh. what the okay. fuck? What the fuck, Sir Roderick? You got me. I'm yeah. a guard down. Not not exactly the most familiar or beloved of characters, but okay. I mean, I guess it's just that's that's her heroism defined. Like it you're is, about yeah. to now. Obviously, he. Be, I think he truly believes in what he's saying that he's gone off mm-hmm. to see his father. But like in your last moment, you're trying to comfort a child. And and I wonder, is he also trying to send a message to the people to resist? You know? Uh, like, I'm going to be the example. I'm going to be the martyr here. He's Keith Olbermann-ing it. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know what Keith Olbermann has to do with this, but all right. <laughs> resist. Uh, yeah, it's, it sure as hell wasn't a clean death, though. No. Um, he had to kick the head off of Roderick. Yeah, that, that <laughs> was fucking brutal. And he Obi-Wan'd him, too, uh, at, in between Olbermann-ing. He said, now you're truly lost. Yeah. Um, it's a great scene. It's a great scene, and it uh, really, really felt felt it in in my guts. Yep. Uh, so they march off to find the wildling scouts up north. Um, the half hand is educating John on the wildling's prowess in that area, and talks about the thankless job they have of fighting a war against an enemy they can never defeat, and that they'll never be recognized for. Uh, yeah. Won't even know your name. It's um, 
a, com- a complex scene because Corin, it's the way I read it is he is building. He, he so so he 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 demonstrates John's complete uh, naivete and inexperience. Mm-hmm. Then he uses like bullshit to build him up. And as it starts to work, he then tears him down right again. It's like I can't believe, like I, this, all this shit that I'm talking to you about the nobility of sacrifice. You're 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 still too dumb, kid. Like, yeah, I feel like he's he's trying to perform a reset on John's thinking here. No, totally. <laughs> like he he's trying to blank slate him to just confuse him so that he can then put the ideas of the Night's Watch truly into his head. Right. Uh, build him up from the ground, and yeah, it, it's effective because I was just as thrown as John in a lot of these. Yeah, because he's like, I don't know if I should agree, like, uh, yeah. if I should agree with this guy or not. Because every single time he starts, like, you know, preaching the gospel of the Black Brothers, he then, right, you know, derisively turns it on his head. It's like, you know, nothing. It's it's very kind of nihilist. Which I guess if you're doing this, uh, you know, suicide rear guard mission, you kind of need to instill in your men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I felt like a um, uh, almost a Full Metal Jacket boot camp mm-hmm. scene. Right here, this like, is war. Stop. Th- yeah, this is Corin doing his best, Arlie Ermy, like which is just confusing the crap out of you and right. making you so disoriented that he can just put whatever he needs to into your mind. Right. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, he doesn't get much of a chance because John runs off like an idiot. Yeah, uh, but we'll see that in a bit. Why? Why does everyone? <laughs> I know it's it's a frowned upon thing to be, but why does everyone enunciate bastard so much? In Westeros, that's all I could see in this scene. Bastard. I think it's because I mean it's it's usually for effect, right? Like anytime someone's you, you like, uh, but it's every time bastard is said. Every right. time. I don't know. It's kind of like when someone is yelling at you negative terms, they usually emphasize it. Like you know, there's no usually like a what do they call it? Like a, there's not a soft like motherfucker that you can give someone. Hey no? motherfucker, I just want to check in with you, see how you're doing. You know, it's like, motherfucker, what the... F-? So it's, it's bastards the same way. I just okay. feel like he's trying to go... He's trying... This is part of him uh, trying to get John's peak performance out of him. Hmm. All right. We move on to Tywin, who is just absolutely roasting one of his fool officers here for accidentally sending a message meant for their troops to a Stark loyalist house. Whoops. Yeah, big mistake. Uh, and it's it's not just any message. It's like troop movement type stuff. Um, Littlefinger shows up to take advantage of Rinley's death by convincing Tywin essentially to allow him to make a deal with the Tyrells involving Marjorie being married mm-hmm. to their family somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also mentions that this this deal that happened in Rinley's camp with Catelyn about trading Jamie for her daughters. Uh, yeah, he's, interesting he's got a lot of that, info there. that Tyrion... I mean, it, it shows the extent uh, the, to the Tyrion's freestyling. Yeah. Uh, because he's not checking in with his dad or sending ravens, and also well, his dad's not checking in with anybody in right. King's Landing. So I think he, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, this is all this is all a uh, continuation of things we learned from last episode. But mm-hmm. I couldn't tell with the way Tywin's eyes sparkled when he found out his son's proposal. Is he impressed? Is he charmed? Is he? Mm-hmm. 
you know, like, oh, what did this fucker come up with? You know, I, 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 I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah, he's uh, probably a little skeptical until he hears the the full extent. And I honestly, it's one of those things where you get the best of both worlds because I don't really. This is not a book thing, <laughs> um, and uh, I I don't have a clear idea of exactly what he thinks about this. So um, I honestly, I I'm just going off his performance. I'd believe that uh, he's secretly impressed. He's secretly rolling his eyes. <laughs> Not sure. The one thing he's not impressed with, and I love, most people will let Littlefinger just be Littlefinger. Tywin is having none of it. Like, Littlefinger says this line um, about opportunity, like crisis being an opportunity, and he's like, oh, you say that as if you're the first person to ever think it. Right. He's not going to let Littlefinger you're rip- just... <laughs> you're ripping off, uh, you know, fucking Confucius and... and... <laughs> right. Uh, sons. I love it because like Marjorie humors him, Catelyn humors him. Like a right. lot of people just let him say the things he's going to say. Tywin doesn't. Right. Yeah. I. I he doesn't let really any. Like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because this this uh, episode also humanizes him quite a bit too. Yeah. When he tells a story about teaching a dyslexic Jamie to read, but yeah, like you just get the idea that this guy would be a fucking nightmare as a boss lord command. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Any position of authority. Yeah. And, and one of the other core tensions in this scene is obviously, does Littlefinger recognize Arya? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Does he does he know what he's seeing here? Clearly, he's, like, side-eyeing her and going, do I know that person? Yeah. I feel like he has to because Arya was you. brought to court just recently. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, my, my 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 understanding is that he does. Now why he doesn't okay. you know, why why he doesn't say anything is a is another question. I don't have a good answer for that either except for, you know, like he says chaos is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh Arya running amok in the the Lannister lines is is chaos personified. Yeah, it strikes so, me as very little finger to take in the knowledge yes, and, I, I, and sit back and say, what will I do with this? This is something of value. Yeah. I'm not sure how to cash it in right now, so I'll just put it in my back pocket and see if its value matures. Yep. Uh, then we go back up to the Night's Watch. They find the scouts, and they kill all of them except for this woman named Egret, who they question, and she tells them that they should probably burn the bodies of the dead. They think it's a ploy by her to get her friends to see them uh once they're done interrogating her corin says we have to kill her john volunteers to do it but he fails and she runs and he chases and catches her do you have i you know i never got got this on the first time through but watching it this i got the distinct because you know they're making corin out to be a pretty bad dude he's like bad in what way like uh he doesn't see he sees the wildlings as as less than human Okay, yeah. and is willing to visit atrocities upon them. I got this distinct uh, feeling. Yeah, his comparisons to ghosts are particularly like. Yeah, yeah they're they're wild beasts. You'll never know their ways. That sort of thing. Exactly. I have a, I have a because I I never understood in the first time I was watching this. Like, well, why does he leave John to kill? Like, this seems very James Bond villain. I actually got the chilling thought that I think they expected John to rape this woman and then kill her. Oh boy! Because why else would you be like? All right, well, do what you need to do, but be quick about it. We'll be up the mountain waiting on you. Like, what the fuck? How long does it take to lop someone's head off? Yeah. So I think that's that gives you an idea of, like, uh, what 
this Corrin Halfhand guy is to the Wildlings. Like he is uh, one of the yeah. This guy he's he's a bad dude. He's like the Robert Duvall. I love the smell of napalm in the morning character from you know Apocalypse <laughs> Now. Like uh-huh. he he hates and dehumanizes the Wildlings, and they'd be happy to hate and 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 torturously kill kill him. And this is the shit. This is why. Yeah, I mean that thought hadn't crossed my mind, but I guess we do know John is a sexist because. This person would be dead if it was a man, yes? Oh, for sure. Run through with that sword so fast, right? he wouldn't even have blinked. And he, he, under, he underestimates her several times to his peril in this, in this, yeah. this one episode. Uh-huh. Uh, but no, I, I thought that that's like, we're supposed to understand that and that, uh, you know, this is one of the things that, that John doesn't fully appreciate about the Night's Watch either. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, my biggest question here is when John swings his sword... Does he just miss? Because I, I I can't understand. I can't parse it. He looks surprised. She looks surprised. I don't know what happens here. I think he meant to... I don't think he missed her. I think that he swung the sword kind of like as a way, like, okay, I'm going to do it. But then he he directed it to... Like, I don't know why he needs to fucking ruin the sword. Either kill her or don't. Yeah, yeah. You're, and why he's so surprised when he sees it. Like, I think I, I feel like his body betrayed him. Yeah, here. no, I like I, he, he was set. His mind was set on killing her, but something in him couldn't do it. He knows what he has to do. All the things that the half hand is saying about you can't let her go because we, we can't keep her because we got we we don't have the food. We can't let her go because she'll just go back and tell Mance and the whole jig will be up. Mm-hmm. Like this is uh this is one of those casualties of war type of situation and uh John can't do it. He's too he's too chivalrous. I do like the way that the the end of this scene is filmed. They sort of disorient me as an audience member because I couldn't actually tell you how John got to where he slid in from mm-hmm. at the end. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah, pretty yeah. effective, I thought. No, it's cool and it shows that like, you know, because contra what the half hand was saying about the wildlings, like, you know, John's lived in the north, not the north north all of his life, but <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe he slid on a patch of ice or two. Also, mm-hmm. so this is the first time we see Rose Leslie as Egret. I really like her. She's mm-hmm. she plays this like naturally tough and she's got the like really tough lower class accent that the, that's in, endemic of the wildlings um i really also my first introduction to her as an actress is uh, in downton abbey she was one of the better characters in the, the the initial run of that show uh but yeah like she she is uh she's really good at playing egret yeah the fiery red-headed wildling yeah there's something magnetic about her as a performer yeah, she just got these like you know she's you can see why a guy like John would be kind of like you know she's she's attractive but in kind of that rough spun wildling way and she's very mm-hmm. fierce and she's got the energy and you can see why she would intrigue him. Yeah. Okay, we go back to King's Landing and Cersei is cursing Tyrion as they watch Marcella float off toward Dorne. Uh, Joffrey acts like an ass by making fun of a kid who's crying, and then he walks through the city as the people demand food. It suddenly turns violent as Joffrey's hit in the face with shit, and he tells his men to kill everyone for it. Um, the royals barely escape with their lives. Tyrion calls Joffrey a vicious idiot king, while Sansa's caught by the crowd, and she's about to be raped, but the Hound m- manages to find and rescue her at the last minute. Yeah. I. Uh, it's a great scene. It is a great scene. Um, it, the, the thing with jo- Joffrey and the fact that Sansa's so appalled that she actually takes a direct, like, like speaking of surprising oneself, 
um i feel like she did too like she calls joffrey on his bullshit and then immediately mm-hmm. is like oh god what did i just do i better cover it with a with with a lie um yeah but yeah just he's joffrey doesn't get it like you've got a couple kingsguard and a hound and a lot of the royal family here and you're going to start a civil war no, he thinks... Over getting hit by shit. Because maybe, he's the king, he's invincible, and that's just not true. Yeah. And you question the wisdom of, like, maybe, like, why did they have to parade through? Like, why didn't they have more security? It seems like that the Lannisters in general are, if anything, underestimating how angry the people are mm-hmm. at the fact that they're starting to starve because food is, is disrupted because of the war. And also that these these uh, stories that Stannis has been telling about the illegitimacy, that stuff is, people are want, are ready to believe it, you know? Yeah. We heard last episode, the street peddler kind of, like, talking about this stuff openly, and Tyrion was more amused by it than anything. He didn't recognize the danger of, of pouring that, allowing that poison to be poured into the people and not doing anything about it. Yeah, when they're already under so much stress. The High Septon got torn yeah. literally to pieces. I, what, Damn. what did that guy ever do to them? <laughs> like... Uh, I feel worse. I feel worse for him than anybody else in that scenario because I don't think he deserved it. Well, so the books led us into the backstory of him, and they they show like the fact that like this guy is dressed very opulently and he's fat. Sure, fine. And the books show that he's very also kind of known to be corrupt and venal. So... Unless you're going to eat him, I don't see what the point <laughs> is. I just think that these people are like he's an easy target. He's yeah. just fat, soft rich holy man that doesn't live up to his word and they're going to tear him to pieces and maybe even eat him he might end up in a crock pot yeah, in uh, flea bottom somewhere but it, that was show, fucking metal yeah it was and the guy holds his arm up like a tuscan raider <laughs> yeah just shouting into the air yeah it's great um but yeah in the show they don't really go into that they're just like here's the septon and they're gonna tear him to pieces right um, and then the scene where Joff, they get you know Joffrey to a relative place of safety within the Red oh, Keep, man. and he's going, "Oh, I killed him, killed him!" And, and Tyrion's trying to, uh, you know, I guess as reasonable as you can, point out the fact that th- you can't do this, and and he's <laughs> when he slaps him, uh, and or he says that he's a vicious idiot. He says, "I, I know the realm has had vicious kings and idiot kings. I don't know it's uh-huh. ever been graced with the vicious idiot kings. Like, you can't insult me." Slaps him and said, "Oh, <laughs> and now I've I've struck the king. Did my hand fall from my wrist?" Yeah, it's um, great. It's fantastic. Ballsy for Sir Marin Trant to deny a direct order from Tyrion. I thought. Uh, yeah. I mean, he doesn't serve Tyrion. He's he's a Joffrey diehard. Yeah, but you Joffrey know, like I, I'm I'm just surprised he had the balls to do it because if I was him, I'd be worried huh. that the next time uh the next time Bronn and him are in the yeah. room, Bronn's is going to stab him. Yeah, I mean, he did threaten him directly. Right. Uh, and also we've seen Janos being carted off already, so Right. It's totally possible. Yeah. Um I feel like Tyrion is really pushing his luck though with Joffrey. Like Joffrey is vicious and he is an idiot so if he wants to have his brother killed or sorry his uncle killed he probably can yeah i wonder like if he turns around right now and says marin kill that guy i don't marin, know i think marin does it I joffrey don't, has how that smart authority do you think marin trant is because not very because I think the thing is is like i tywin would fucking clean house if someone killed Tyrion. 
because he would see that as an attack upon himself. Uh, his family, yeah, which is what is most important. Well, not only that, but, but, I, but he but when it, wrote a letter that says, "This is the hand. Treat him as if you, you know." Uh-huh. And and if Marin Trant does that to, for the boy king at his peril, I mean, you're right. I, it's an order directly from the king. I don't know that you can refuse enough. it. Like the hound would know the score. He'd be <laughs> like, "Yeah, okay, right." Wait till wait till your grandpa gets here and confirms that order. Then and d- I'll do d- it. I mean, does Joffrey just go down the line? Does he say, "Marin, kill that guy"? Nah. Not going to do it. Okay, next guy in line, kill Marin. Yeah. Where, where it, eventually it, you find somebody who's willing to follow your order unquestioningly, and that's it. Yeah, and your point being like that, that Tyrion is ballsy for doing this too, because yeah. it would have been real easy for Marin Trant to stick a Tyrion right there in the streets and then blame the crowd. Yeah. Like and who would have who would have said otherwise? Like who was there? Cersei, mm-hmm. Joffrey, the Kingsguard, the Hound. The Hound's not gonna. No. I mean, the Hound's got his own ideas of what's right and what's wrong, but he doesn't give a shit about Tyrion. No. Bronn's certainly. not there, which is kind of surprising mm-hmm. that the head of the king, the 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 gold cloaks, isn't there. It was yeah. uh, is it is it a risky situation. I felt that. It felt chaotic. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like holy shit, is uh, Sansa going to get stabbed? Is she going to get raped? And then you know, fucking the Hound walking in like Darth Vader. Yeah, that's another. Speaking of metal scene, just disemboweled <laughs> that. And I thought like, okay, he's going to disemboweled and the guys will leave. Nah, no, everyone. No. He's gonna. He's gonna. He's gonna eat every chicken in the room. <laughs> he is. You might say. Uh, it, I love the guy who hits him with a rock, and it doesn't even phase no. the hound. A, mm. he hits him in the armor, which right. is a bad idea. But right. I think even full onto the skull, he probably would have just shrugged it off. Right. And surprisingly gentle with the with the Sansa. Yeah. Like, uh, and then when uh, when Tyrion thanks him for his service, he says, "I didn't do it for you." Presumably. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he did he did it because uh, he sees something in Sansa that is uh, I don't know that he admires or maybe he just like is not the kind of guy who's going to let a crowd tear a young girl apart. Either way, it it reveals a, a a little bit of a depth to Sandor that wasn't there before. Yep. So we go over to Karth, where Danny is very annoyed that she's waiting for the Spice King of Karth. Um, when he finally arrives, he's the guy who initially met her at the front gate. Um, Danny asks for his ships, and he says no, and he points out that it's a really long shot that he'll get his investment repaid since she has no allies or armies. Danny makes this impassioned plea, which includes how extraordinary she is, citing the way in which her dragons were hatched, and he still refuses to give her the ships. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because he, he's got this line he walks where he's not outright disrespectful for her. He just keeps it all – he's all business. I think the I think the the text of this yes is not disrespectful but everything in the subtext is. I mean from the way he's standing to the way he talks to her and the fact um, that he kept her waiting. I mean I, we're supposed to understand that she's essentially a child here. Yeah. Um, and that he might see her as that. And she has she has really nothing to offer. She doesn't. No, I I mean yeah, as far as the business transaction he's actually he's absolutely right. Um he does not see a way in which he'll ever get a return for this. Her dragons, her ridiculous dragons, are like five inches tall. Right. They're like Funko Pop figures at this right. point. They're right. not doing anything. So I think this guy is right on in the business proposition. But, like, everything else about it, this this Wallace Shawn wannabe is just shitting <laughs> all over her. And But it does seem like he escalates in step with her. Like... You know, yeah, he did keep really? her waiting. I mean, he keeps her waiting. He comes down the stairs and begins the conversation, like, high above her in this dominant position. I, 
I think the way it's framed, it's all about but the thing is, demeaning is it, her. Yes, you're right. But I think in, when you're in Danny's position, you cannot afford to take to, to try to go out haughty this person. And I sure, feel like yeah. she does step for step. Like, okay, she wants to be treated like the conquering queen when she's not, and that was the point. Like, I don't, I don't think it would have made any difference had she, you know, been like, oh, a thousand pardons, oh, thank you for, you know, like if she would said yeah. the right things. But I do think that he kind of escalated his dismissive rhetoric in lockstep with her escalating her kind of unhinged demands for fealty. And I do feel like that's Danny's role at this point is to be this person who thinks that she's got this super important destiny that she has to fulfill but she is completely unprepared for it yeah and a little you know a little a little delusional about yeah you know because like it's it's she's finding it's a lot easier to impress you know essentially desert nomad people who Mm -hmm. saw a legit miracle than it is these wealthy comfortable Merchants who you know calculate with their uh, presumably a Bacchus. They have a Bacchus in Westeros. I assume so. Yeah. Uh, the, whatever their calculate, whatever their bean counting method is, that they have to see like a profit. There has to be you know a reasonable expectation for a return, and there just isn't with her. No, she has nothing but a tenuous, outdated claim to the throne, mm-hmm. and three dragons who could do more damage if you loaded them into a slingshot <laughs> and fired them than yeah. on their own. For sure. Um, but I, I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was still a good scene despite the really just unfortunate position Danny is in and, and the tone of the whole thing. I, so the other thing is, like, this season, you know, we talked about how this season kind of Danny is, a lot of people get annoyed with her, Um I don't think Amelia Clark does herself many favors. Like, hmm. h- how much of this is her just not being able to be commanding and impressive? And how much is it we, she is acting like someone who's having trouble being and, commanding and impressive? Because like, That's a fair I, question. I, I read it more as, like, this character is written this way. Hmm. Um, and I don't put so much of that on Amelia as an actress. I think she's she's good she is just written as a character rightfully who is young and naive and driven by this goal that she can't possibly attain well, see i've always said that like i think that she does really good playing um she's good at like playing bemused and she's good at playing powerful and she's but anytime she has to emote like some kind of sadness or desperation or you know those kind of deeper like more subtle subtle emotions she struggles but i found it very hard to even take her serious maybe it's because you're right the situation as written this guy's above her and she's below and she's ranting and raving about fire and blood when she has and her her position is obviously weak yeah and obviously they, they dressed her up kind of like she's pretending it's not these merchants have dressed her up like some kind of slave girl from Jabba's palace so <laughs> right. that doesn't help her being taken serious so like i know she's got a lot of things but i just and this scene, I thought, like, this is mm, some hmm. some dodgy work that's being done. Okay. I, I don't agree. I didn't feel that way. All but, right. Uh, to each their own. I, I do th- like, in retrospect, that this scene is really just a stalling tactic, right? This is a way to get her out away from her people and her dragons so that they can come in and steal them, which we'll see later. Right. Um so we go back to Tywin. He approaches Arya to talk about her reading skills, and he asks who her father was. She says he was a stonemason, and Tywin buys it. She's apparently a good liar. 
Uh, Arya asks about his father and steals a parchment from Tywin's table as he waxes not so nostalgic about it. Um, he says his father loved everyone, loved his family, was but he man. was a weak man. He's equating, I guess, love with weakness here. Um, a weak man who nearly destroyed our house and name. It's like father, like son, my ass. You know, uh, Tywin seems to have been directly influenced by the weakness he perceived in his father to become the exact opposite of that and care in his own way about his family, but right. in merely the preservation of the name. Right. And he wants, like, his son to be educated, and, like, a weaker man who loved the son more might take it easy on her, and and Jamie might be illiterate. Would Yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, would Jamie love him more if if he was illiterate? Like, is that acceptable? Like, if but I, I think it's it's this scene asks you to hold a bunch of contradictory uh, yeah. thoughts about Tywin and kind of see how he came by his like prickly kind of love. And mm-hmm. I, I also don't like I don't totally agree that it he cares nothing except for his family's name. Um, I think he does care about his children, but he you know sees his ultimate duty as making sure that they're positioned to. Um, have this 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 dynastic ambition that like the only way to preserve the Lannisters is to make yeah. sure they're running shit. Well, that's what I that's kind of what I mean. Like he doesn't he wouldn't give a shit like what Jamie's hopes and dreams are. Mm-hmm. He's more gonna force him to buckle down and do the things that are gonna prepare him to perpetuate the family line. True that and the family authority. You know, right now do you do you think that because. You seem to think that uh, Tywin's completely snowed in by Arya. And I'm not saying that he knows that she's Arya Stark, because I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he knows there's depth to her, and he is keeping her around, like, his own private Sudoku. <laughs> like, okay. that's, like he's yeah. he's trying to figure out, like, what's the deal with this northern peasant girl who can read and who has a stone ma- maester father who can read and mm-hmm. who died from loyalty. Like, this is, this is an interesting challenge to him. Okay. And he can see that... I don't know that he knows the attraction or the fascination of her to him, but he's mm-hmm. like, you know, he can he can see that and he's kind of fascinated by her and they're having this this interesting interesting little duel. And which makes their scenes really tense because that you know, when you're watching this, you're supposed to think and I think they do this successfully that at any moment he could like whirl around and be like, "God damn it, you're Arya Stark." <laughs> you know, uh uh-huh. that's the danger because he's so damn smart and yeah. perceptive. Um but, and the fact that we've been told that Tywin is so damn smart and, per, and, and perceptive, when he freely offers the observation that she's a sharp thing, our estimation of Arya rises right, right. with his. Yeah. So it, it's it's a great scene to build, kind of uh, continue to build both their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so Arya reads this parchment that she's stolen, and she's stopped by one of the officers uh, who who busts her. Um, <laughs> speaking of these officers, like it. Tywin might be keeping her around literally to plan his next battle plan <laughs> because these guys seem to be fools. Did you know the guy who grabbed her is the same illiterate guy from yeah. okay the, from the, the previous Amory L- Lorch is his name. Um, yeah, which I didn't realize the when I think when I was watching um, when I was watching this the first time I didn't realize it was the same guy because I wasn't as steep quite as steep in in Game of Thrones lore. But like that that's the oh okay. And the other thing is... I'm not is, either. I just recognize his face. I also thought, like, if I was observing this, I'm like, it's kind of ballsy for this guy 
who can't read the message to question Tywin's personal page. Like, yeah, he's just been dressed He's like, well, why would you take this to the armory? It's like, I don't, it's your fucking Lord's orders. You can't read them. It's in his, you probably uh-huh. recognize his handwriting. I'm his page. What the, like, I, I in another universe, he comes into Tywin and just gets like, Tywin's like, you know what? Fuck you. I, you already pissed me off this morning. I'm throwing you off this yeah. four story, out this four story window. You're too goddamn stupid to live. <laughs> uh, I don't care if you are my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, he's just a lorch. He's he's he. he oh yeah, he, he's not he, even a Lannister. He's yeah. Done. Ty, Tywin torch a lorch without even thinking about it. Uh. <laughs> uh, so she runs to Jacken and she names this officer and says it has to happen right now. Which Jacken's like, oh fine, yeah, fine. The, I was going to get lunch, but whatever. The performance where he's like, you know, because he starts his unctuous kind of like, oh, a girl has named another yeah. name. Oh, a man has to wait to the time. Oh fuck. The, the, this just She's like, like, I don't have time for this shit, Jackin. Right. And he's like, he's kind of annoyed, but also, you know, there's another guy who we've been ta- taught to think of as fucking impressive, and he is mm-hmm. suffering Arya. And you're like, again, you keep on thinking that Arya is, is awesome, more and more awesome because she has this effect on these people around her. Mm-hmm. Also, shit, holy shit, what can Jackin not do? Yeah. I, I, he didn't, I guess he knew where this guy was headed. But the guy had a big head start on him. Oh yeah, uh, and Jacket ends up putting a right as he's arrow opening the door is what you're supposed to realize because yeah. he's like, I looked like he's about to say, and he just falls forward dead yeah, that dark in his neck. It's fucking awesome. So good. You, you know, I I couldn't help but thinking, instead of naming this Amory Lorch guy, mm-hmm. you could just solve the whole problem by naming Tywin Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my, my question is, would she at this point? Like, does she? To go back to what Duck Sauce says earlier about never meeting a woman who didn't, who wasn't influenced at least a little bit by flattery, is she maybe drawn into the world of Tywin a little That's bit a too much question. here by his compliments because, and his, because his sad stories? You're right. The fact that she hasn't tried to name Tywin yet is a little suck. Because last last week we covered it by saying, well, she didn't know that Jack Jackin could just be blowing her shit. Yeah. Now, now she, knows. she knows he's legit. Mm-hmm. Um. One, I mean, if you want to give Arya a lot of credit, this is not on, I don't think, necessarily on the screen, but she might be smart enough to perceive if I kill Tywin, the war will still go on and, and northern men will still die. But if you but don't, if I, the same is true. But but no, if I can subvert and like be mm-hmm. like this inside spy, he has no idea, yeah. then maybe I can be, you know, I, I can actually be a force multiplier. Yeah, you know, because like, let's say she kills Tywin, and then Tywin's brother, um, shit, I've forgotten his name. But they're all dumbasses. They made it. They made it a point that Tywin's the only guy here who really has his head on his shoulders. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the 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 few thing, the few people that we've seen like uh, open their mouth and 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 say things have been, you know, poo pooed by Tywin for sure. I don't know that we're supposed to understand his entire war council. Yeah, is. Is is fucking? You know, I'm just working idiot. with the examples I have. <laughs> right, right. Like Ke- Kevin, Kevin Lannister is his, is his brother. Yeah. Um, you know, because if if every last ty- uh, Lannister except for himself and Tyrion are fucking idiots, that's I don't know. It says something about his character. I'm not sure. I'm ready to cosign. Yeah. Like he surra- Like like that means he surrounded himself with idiots, and he's right. given he's 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 weak to nepotism. 
<laughs> which makes him a certain kind of idiot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, okay. I'm trying to find a way, but you're right. That's a great question. Why isn't she naming uh, Tywin right now? And and if I'm being a little generous, I could say it's heat of the moment. She she knows she has to do something, and she just does the first thing that comes to her mind. That's like a genie's wish, and... you know? Uh, you got you got three of them. Uh, do you want to... You know what? What are what happens if you name Tywin? F- well, you're right. You only have, I, 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 yeah. I don't. I don't have very many defenses about why she wouldn't name Tywin right now. No, there I, there. I mean I like yours. If she can be a spy, yeah. she might be more useful. Because um, the next commander of this army is not going to have her as his, has their cupbearer. Probably not. So she's in a unique position. Uh, we go to Rob walking through the camp, spreading goodwill, uh, really congratulating his men, I think, on the battle that they just won. And this is the classic, oh, this is a good commander scene. You see yeah. it in, you know, you see it in stuff like Spartacus. You see it in, like, fucking Gladiator. You see it, like, in the guys going around and clapping his men. He, oh, he fucking knows the armor bender for sir what's his fuck like right. he knows him by first name basis and that's like oh this is <laughs> this is not just a strategic commander but he also has inspired this intense loyalty in his men and this is why speaking of people he knows on a first name basis he spots talisa uh whom he calls a lady because it's obvious to him that she's of noble birth they flirt for a while and then rob asks her to join him for something but his mom shows up and puts the kibosh on it uh, he introduced her to Talisa, but she runs away almost immediately. Uh, and Catelyn reminds Rob, look, you're promised to another, and you cannot pursue Talisa. And he knows. He knows. I know, Mom. I know, Mom. <laughs> Jeez. I wasn't we were thinking just talking. that. We're just friends. <laughs> uh, then Roos comes in, and he delivers some news from Winterfell. Yeah. Um, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. I mean, as far as flirting scenes go between nobles, this is pretty good. I enjoyed it. Uh, there's definitely definitely uh, charisma between these two, mm-hmm. so it shows. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more on that scene. Well, so the one thing I want to talk about, and I don't know, we might have to mark this because this might be inappropriate, but there was a lot of um, real-time speculation back in Season 2 about there's, there's, there's this very popular theory about the fact that Talisa could be a spy. And I remember this scene okay. as one of the first pieces of evidence because she's writing this letter and Rob kind of confronts her about it. And she tells this lie about like, oh, it's 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 it's, you know, I'm, I'm detailing King Rob's movements to the Lannisters, mm-hmm. which is like, ha ha, unless she's killing him with the truth, you know? Yeah. Like she's 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 telling him covering the, one lie with another. Right, 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 yeah. right. Um, and the fact that like she's this foreign woman that no one's ever heard of and her name and she's in Westeros doing what Doctors <laughs> Without Borders kind of shit and and we come right off the back of a scene where Arya is a spy and stealing Arya, letters about then, troop there's, movements. There's a lot. There's there's uh, this 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 idea that she might have like this and and she's also as Cat points out. Um, you know, if 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 Rob gets Twitter paid by it, it's it's a political liability as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying if that's right or wrong. I just want to say that this was very real. Lots of time spent and analyzing her, uh, you know, movements throughout these episodes. I think that's fair. There's a lot of suspicious activity here. Um. Okay, so we go to John deciding that they're going to stop hit him and Eager are going to stop in the middle of nowhere. 
uh, with no shelter and no fire. And he very, very loosely ties up Egret uh, for the night and gets down and spoons her. And she's grinding on him, which is really annoying to him. But back, she, back she's having that a ass up. pretty good time with it, I'd say. <laughs> uh, just annoying the crap out of John, which I, I enjoyed. or... Yeah, making... I mean, po- poking at him. Just like... <laughs> I think he's poking at her. <laughs> he probably is at that point, but... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I don't know. I really liked it. He's trying trying so hard to, to find a, a middle path between what he thinks is his duty and I, I think the tone, being close to her booty. <laughs> the tone is a little weird here because I, I guess at this point she's just figured out, look, John's not going to kill me, period. Yeah, I can yeah, do yeah. anything I want. I can fuck with him to no end, and he is not going to bring that sword down on my neck. Also, I think this is story. This is start. This is a little bit of storytelling established the wildlings and their culture. Like they're just not as dour, duty bound. Yeah. Like she, you're right. She no longer fears him, and now she's having fun with him. Yeah. And I also think you know if you take her out of word, she's also trying to turn him. She thinks that like here's this brave but stupid boy <laughs> who clearly. You know, stayed his hand because I'm a pretty, pretty, I'm a pretty girl, yep. and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to play this hand as, as, as well as I can. Yeah, I think she plays it pretty well. Uh, we go over to the news from Winterfell and Rob's camp, and it's all bad. Uh, Rob gets pissed about Theon taking Winterfell, and he wants to take it back. So Roos volunteers to do it, and Rob says. Keep my brother safe, that's the top priority, and also bring Theon back alive so I can look him in the face and ask him why the hell he did it and then cut his head off. Uh, a pretty utilitarian scene here, although I liked it. Rob is appropriately angry. Yeah, I like he's like, why would he do this? And and Roos is like, well, the Greyjoys are treasonous whores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just Q- fact. QED. And also Cat comes with, rushing in with, I told you! Like, come on! Like that's that's yeah that's uh you know uh influencing people one oh one when they know that you, they done been told and it destroys the it destroys the I mean it's 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 very hard to resist but it destroys the <laughs> the power of the lesson you just taught by just you know I told you stupid son of a bitch yeah yeah it it makes them more resentful than they should be <laughs> um also when when Roos is referring to his uh his his child here did, this is the the softest bastard i think you've ever heard yeah this easily. wasn't a, this wasn't a spat it's just like yeah hey my hey my, my my bastard at the dreadfort yeah he called he called the motherfucker too he said my motherfucking bastard motherfucking, motherfucking yeah he just yeah back at the dreadfort yeah. would do this for us yeah as, as no as, malice as, just as, as soft as silk with the swears on this guy <laughs> All right, so we go over to Winterfell, and Asha is making another play for her survival by offering to fuck Theon. It comes at a price, though. She wants her freedom. He agrees. That's it. That's the whole scene. She takes her clothes off. He's eating apples. They bang. Done. Mm-hmm. He could eat an apple for hours. He's going to Nick Cager. Castor Theon. <laughs> uh, all right. Shay is tending to Sansa's wounds while she ponders how people could hate a noble girl who hates the king just like they do. And Shay says, hey, you don't get any of it, but also don't trust anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's Shay. I, I had a reader or a listener rather reach out and like kind of query about why I hate Shay so much. And mm-hmm. like I think half of it's the character and half of it is the actor. But what I'm the thing I kind of narrowed in on is that 
you know, Shay in is many things. Like sometimes she has scenes like this where it seems like there is some genuine like empathy and fellow feeling towards people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she has scenes where she's a spoiled brat, and then she has a scene where she's conniving, manipulating. But like, yeah, I always feel like she plays it exactly how the script says it. Like I feel like a a, a notch better actor would have some kind of work with the writers and directors to have an idea of what her character is really thinking and what she is Mm -hmm. really like. And and that would come across in all her portrayals. But she's not. She's just always... She's either conniving or spoiled or caring or... But there's no, like, backbone or through line for that character, which I think, you know, I... Most of the time, I'd probably say it's, it's, it's probably poor direction, except for... Poor direction is not exactly one of the things people say about Game of Thrones. Sure. You know, it says, yeah. like, ah, oh, it's, you know, a pretty good show, decent production values. Boy, they can't direct themselves <laughs> out of a, a burlap sack. No, not at all. Uh, I think this scene is interesting to. It, it puts a little light on Shay when it comes to her and Tyrion's relationship as well. Right. And the development there, because when she says don't trust anyone, I fully think at this point she includes Tyrion in that. She may be starting to doubt that Tyrion actually wants her there for the reasons that he said he did in the first place. Um, I, I think that there's th- that is developing in the background. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and I do think this is one of her better scenes. I just yeah. think that, like, th- whatever... And it was written as this kind of character moment, but I don't feel like that character moment then goes back and mm-hmm. reinforms what she does with her character going forward. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, we go back over to Theon. He has fallen asleep with Asha next to him, and I thought she was just going to kill him. But instead, she gets up and tries to run off. She's stopped by a guard whom she kills, and then she escapes with Hodor, Bran, Rickon, and the dogs. What's it? These fucking great... These, these Iron Islanders, pretty fucking stupid. Yeah, I. how would you ever feel comfortable sleeping in that room? I, right? With a wildling who that would kill you if too, she could. Where, like, they are going to be able to... Yeah, I... I yeah. I just I'm staggered by how much these guys think with their dicks and mm-hmm. you know quickly. And are... I mean, you know, okay, so he wants to think with his dick, fine, but then to just fall asleep there. Well, but then the dude, like, she comes creeping out of his quarters uh-huh. and he's like, and "Oh, he's yes, immediately taken in." My lord said me to to keep all you men warm, and he's like, "Yeah, like, come on, yeah, like you're not even you're fucking on guard." Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's tough in Game of Thrones because I always view these people as being like late 20s, but I know they're supposed to be like no. fresh kids, like yeah, green, you're just right. thinking with their libido and all the time. And they're not educated. They're very provincial. Yeah. Like this yeah. kid probably has never been off to Iron Island before. It's always hard for me to get in that mindset with You're them, right. Though. You're right. Like like any average person on the street, like you know, like the countryest bumpkin is ten times as urbane and worldly yeah. as a person from, you know, village A from Game of Thrones. Right. So I don't know. Um we go back over to Danny, who is complaining about not being able to get what she wants, uh, to Duck Sauce as they walk through the city, back to her her place she's staying. I don't know, they gave her some kind of quarters. I think this is Zaro's own mansion is it okay that's what uh, I... duck sauce tells her that he was a pitiful poor boy once and that he did some really foul things in the past to get to where he is and she returns to find uh her people are murdered and her dragons are missing and then we see the dragons are being taken to some mysterious tower but and it seems it. it also seems like to me that 
they want us to think that it's the warlocks that have taken her. Do they? I think well, so. Why do you say that? Because I, I felt like that's what the, the the garb of the person carrying the dragons were. Mm. Okay. But also, it happened while she was meeting with the Spice King. Yeah. Um, Which to me says that's a distraction from the Spice King. To, right. to get a hold of the dragons. Right. But then I what I'm saying is I feel like there there's there's like three main uh suspects here because there's also Zaro himself who just gave this speech about like a kind of a Lando Calrissian that reminded me a lot of Lando's speech of uh yeah, I used to have a lot of problems here at Cloud City, but it's smooth sailing because of a deal yeah. I I recently made and then uh-huh. there's Darth Vader and and shit goes bad. And you know, as he's saying, I'm like, yeah, I used to have to do terrible things to get to the to get the things I want in the world. Oh my God, where's my dragons? And so yeah. I feel like there's there's like this this mystery that you're the three prime suspects are the Spice King, the Warlocks, and Zaro himself. Mm-hmm. And we shall see. Or Jorah, where's Jorah in all this? Huh? Damn straight, I haven't seen him for a while. Right, he, off he, getting to ship my ass. Yeah, Dan, Danny's getting a little too independent. You know, a little too, <laughs> little too not dependent on his council, so he, uh-huh. he set her back a couple paces. <laughs> Fucking nice guy, Jora. We get the the we get a where are my dragons? Yeah, I had to stop this. doing that to stop top of the show because people rightfully pointed out it's a fucking spoiler for this episode. But yeah, yeah her we, dragons are gone. We got we got we got uh, with a bullet the where are my dragons? This is the canonical yeah. where are my dragons? <laughs> my, perhaps the only where are my dragons? Perhaps we'll have to see. Um, she she shouts where are they as well? Does that count as two? Uh, yeah. Or are we going specifically yeah. with where are my dragons? No, no, no. That pronoun means dragons. She's referring to dragons, yeah. Yeah, I don't need a Rosetta Stone to translate that. That's that's the two. <laughs> Boom. Two. Where are brackets my dragons? Yep. Um, yeah, and you're like, it's interesting because one of, like, some, so what we see as evidence is it looks like a lot of Zaro's household guard is killed. Hmm. Because that's the thing, like, I, there was definitely Dothraki, you know, there's, Cover. there's, there's Eerie. Uh, there is some one of her blood right. Well, no, not her blood right. But you could saw some of the Dothraki guards. Uh, but then there's also guards dressed up like they're from Karth. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's evidence against. Like, why would Zaro break into his? But then again, if he was the one that stole the dragons, he would have to do that because if like he suffered zero repercussions, yeah, in the attack, then he would be prime suspect, right? I would think so. Yeah. So. Who knows? I imagine we'll find out pretty soon. Where are her dragons? Uh, they're going to a tower. They're in they're a cage. In a box. They're being carried. Yeah. To, being carried by. Yeah. They're in a medieval backpack. I guess it's not that hard, Danny. They're just like if you just patiently watch the next scene, you'd find that's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Danny's the kind of person halfway through the movie you'd be like, "Why? Why are they doing this? That's yeah. the whole fucking point." Shut up and watch. <laughs> yep, that's the end of the episode. Do we have some feedback this week? We do, but we do not have any non-spoilery feedback to None. make the cut. Okay. Nope. Uh, well, so that's it, I guess. For the first time uh, that we don't have any non-spoiler feedback, uh, but we do have a lot of spoiler feedback in okay. the spoiler section, which we'll be getting to momentarily. If you'd like to send feedback, uh, either non-spoilery or general, um, you can do that through Game of Thrones at baldmove.com, uh, or you can also send it to the spo- the same place uh, to, to be considered for a spoiler section. We also have forums, forums.baldmove.com, where you can uh, take there to discuss the show, uh, as well as all the social media, if you uh, want to follow along with what we're doing. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, that kind of thing. 
That's that's it. I think we're ready for spoiler section. Okay. Well, people who are interested in spoilers, join us uh, in just a second. People who are not, we'll see you next week for 207. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Hey, if you've uh, enjoyed our coverage of uh, Season 2 of the Game of Thrones, the only, the only thing that makes it possible is that we're doing this full-time. If we weren't, we never would have gone back and done this rewatch. Uh, so if you would like to contribute to uh, keeping our lights on here at the Bald Move Studio, you can do so at club.baldmove.com. It's an easy way to support us, and you get a bunch of, free, of, of, of bonus extra features. There's bonus audio content, there's ad-free feeds, there's VIP access to the forums, uh, we do those video game playthroughs and spoiler filled uh, first run bald movies, and there's a lot of a lot of hot movies coming up. There's the uh, uh, the, the the Thor three, uh, Star Wars is around the corner. There's going to be a lot of popular ones coming out. Uh, get ahead of the game, join the club, help us keep producing all the content that we do at club.baldmove.com. Okay, let's get to those spoilers. Okay. Uh, Jasmine says, I started out watching season two with you guys, but of course I couldn't limit myself to one episode a week, so now I'm in season four. Littlefinger <laughs> has just pushed Liza Aaron through the moon door, and Sansa very convincingly lied to the other Lords of the Vale and backed up his story of her committing suicide. Mm-hmm. My question is, why didn't Sansa just tell the truth right then and there instead of and getting rid of Littlefinger and securing her safety? He would have been put to death. She would have been able to stay in the relative safety of the Vale until she could marry Robin and then potentially rule over it once she manipulated him enough. I didn't put much thought at, it at, the, at the time, but after seeing everything she went through with Littlefinger and the whole plot her and Arya cooked up this most recent season to kill him, it makes a lot less sense to me. 
She saw how snake-like he was, both in engineering her escape and what he said to Liza before killing her. He's obviously not to be trusted. I can't remember if there's any specific POV chapters from her in the book explaining her reasoning, so I'm hoping you can help me with this. I mean, my guess is he had just saved her life, essentially, and that was repayment. There's that, but, like, this is the season where Sansa started to stop being a scared little girl and started thinking about the future in terms of, like, more than just, I hope I make it through tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key point. Like, Sansa could have betrayed Littlefinger. She's now under the protection of Lords of the Vale, and she's, she's just become another chip to be played you know because what if the lords of the Vale want to get in good with the uh, king's landing in the future they trade her sansa and then she's back in hot water i think part of it is like what you said she feels a little bit of gratefulness to the little finger little finger at this point is also kind of betrayed a weakness for her and mm-hmm. i think that she starts thinking about how she can play the game because that's ultimately the only way she can guarantee her safety is she keeps her destiny in her own hands mm-hmm. and you know she's progressed enough at this point in the story jasmine that i don't think that she sees being guarded by men who are supposedly knights is any kind of real sure permanent safety yeah whereas she, she does have a, a lever where she can manipulate peter um yeah if anybody else has any thoughts on that but that's that's how i've always interpreted it uh, David H., uh, my question is about one of John or Gior Mormont's scenes earlier this season. After John watches a White Walker take one of Craster's baby and reports it back to the Lord Commander, Mormont acknowledges that he, in fact, knew Craster had been sacrificing babies to the White Walkers, the crueler gods that Craster serves. This suggests Mormont was aware of the existence of White Walkers well before they appeared in the show in season one. Why then is he never told anyone about this threat? In the season one opener, Ned beheads the Night's Watchman for desertion and hand waves his comments about seeing the White Walkers as crazy talk. If Mormon is in command of a group whose origin is literally rooted in combating the White Walkers, why keep Craster's sacrifices to himself? Do you have any ideas here, Jim? Is that implied? That, that, he... that was my question. Uh, uh, does John know exactly what he's seen? I don't I can't remember if he specifically says he was giving them to the White Walkers. I mean, I think that's the implication, but when Mormont talks about these crueler gods, I think he's talking about just in terms of like child sacrifice, not necessarily, yeah. oh, I knew he was sacrificing them to the others all along. Right. It's more like, you know, we he just it things are harder up here and they still like you know they follow the old ways and the ways that we we don't you know mm-hmm. um i don't think it's conclusive to say that he knew about the white walkers all of them but i mean intellectually i think that all the knights watch have to accept i think the mystical nature of their duties like i i think that the the knights watchmen probably believe in the others and their their mission it's just that they've been dormant for so long sure uh, their primary threat is the wildlings raiding the north than, you know, the Grumpkins and Starks. Um, but again, I that's that's kind of that's an opinion. I don't I don't know, because otherwise you're, you're right. If he had proof that there's white walkers <laughs> this whole time, why hasn't he been sounding the alarm? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Connor F. In the last episode during feedback, you were talking about the question of whether or not Ned has been avenged for his death. And you got to talking about all the fucks who deserved the vengeance slash murder that came their way. I also want to point out that that motherfucking Jano Slint gets the chopping block by, wait for it, Aegon Targaryen at the wall, <laughs> and it was he who sold Eddard Stark out to Cersei back in season one, only to have his blood end his life for his insolence. Okay, 
we talked about this 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 uh, this fucking Aegon shit. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> it's very confusing. No, I, I, I don't want this to become a recurring thing. The feedback. John Snow. It's John Snow. At at best, it's John quote unquote Aegon Targaryen Snow. Uh-huh. Let's 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 get that straight. Um, yeah, no, fair point. Um, that was, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, is he the most responsible for Ned's death? It's tough to say. Because he's just a pawn of Littlefinger. It, yeah. And the guy who chopped off his head is, you know, uh, uh, pain, yeah. ill in pain. And but he Joffrey was, ordered it. Joffrey and, like, ordered it. Who's yeah. the most responsible? Yeah. Probably who the most responsible is is, is Littlefinger. Okay. Because like, he's I, the one that's that's done, that set all this stuff in motion. And he's, he's yeah. So, but yeah, you're... you're you're right. I, we left him off the list of people who got theirs, but good. Uh, Robert R. I believe Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones arrived at the perfect time culturally. I couldn't imagine it being made before the first episode premiered. If it was made in the seventies or eighties, it'd be a terrible one-time movie that wouldn't make any sense and feel rushed. Oh my god! If it was God. made in the nineties or yeah. aughts, it would have been a really corny, low-budget, and unenthused adaptation. I think it'd be similar to The Black Knight with Martin Lawrence or Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger. But I'm curious what you guys think. Could you imagine Game of Thrones made any earlier than its premiere? Hey, Knight's Tale is great. I don't want to hear any guff about Knight's Tale. Uh, I'll throw in First Night with Richard Gere <laughs> and Sean Connery. Okay. That was another terrible mm-hmm. uh, sword and, so, swords and sorcerers. Oh, I mean, there kinda. are so many. Like, the 80s... Is so full of these fucking things. Death Death Stalker and just, like, yeah. all these crappy sword and sandals. Crawl. Right, Conan, like all I of mean, those. Conan is kind of good. Yeah, Although, but, but if it was Game of Thrones, it I, would be kind of shitty. <laughs> yeah, no, true, true. True that, true that. Because, like, I say it's kind of good because mm-hmm. it was written by Oliver Stone and competently directed, and it also, you know, one of one of Arnold's breakout roles. But uh-huh. have you seen James Earl Jones in a dress lately? And oh, his, and yeah, In his, 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 his 70s disco wig? Yeah. It's not great. No, it's not. It is not great. So, Yeah. Yeah, you, I think he's right. I think you cannot, ha- you could not have made this series any earlier than it was made, even like I, I, the I, late two thousands. I feel like it could have been made immediately after Lord of the Rings because that's hmm. kind of pine. That first of all, it, it 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 got fantasy back to like science fiction levels where just people don't... would spend a lot of money on it, yeah. and two. The tech, the 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 effects technology started to get to the point where you could tell these crazy, fantastic stories on a reasonable budget, for sure. But I don't think television as a medium was ready for it yet. Hmm. I think it needed a lot, a lot of shows to come before it to to get people back into the idea of serious television. Because hmm. for for me, I don't know how most people feel about this, but all through the two thousands, television was sort of a joke with the exception of very few shows like lost or Battlestar or Or sopranos and even those all those examples have pretty big flaws like even sopranos um i haven't seen enough of it to say that but i've heard many many people say that when you rewatch sopranos you're actually kind of shocked at how many throwaway episodes and filler episodes there are yeah And, and i think you needed those precursors to get people ready for the idea of some kind of niche um 
themed drama. Yeah, like this this long sprawling narrative. Yeah. That that was sold as like a drama. Like they had to mm-hmm. hide this sci-fi story in a drama. Yeah. Um, to get it even past the people who would greenlight it. Yeah, that's a good point because I I was thinking that from like technical feasibility, but you're right. Like training an audience to enjoy this type of narrative was one of the innovations of the golden age of television. Yeah. Because before it was prized at like, well, a person should just be able to go in middle of season three and instantly understand the characters and the situations. That was the whole idea of And a season's got to be 24 episodes. Right. Because, you know, you got to be able to do reruns and And sweeps. sweeps. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Golden Age kind of dumped all that shit and said, no, like, if you try to come in the middle of season three, you're going to be fucking lost. Yep. Go catch up on Netflix or HBO Go. And Can you imagine and a 24-episode season of Game of Thrones? You know, the other thing about we don't appreciate about the Golden Age is the roles that these digital delivery systems played in it. Yeah. Because it's an open question whether that shit would have worked without on-demand services. Because, like, who starts watching... Breaking Bad in the middle of season three if the only way to catch up is to like fucking rent DVDs at Blockbuster. Yeah, or spend thirty, forty dollars for a DVD set of exactly, season one. Exactly. Being able to like, oh, this is on HBO Go or oh, this is on Netflix. That's like right, really... I've already got this service. It just showed up. I might as well check it out. I've heard that, good that, things. That never used to the shows that always have the biggest audiences and they they, they trail until they were canceled yeah. because the cost of getting into it at any midpoint was so high. Now in the golden age, we see where you know Breaking Bad does a million, then two million, then three million, then six million, and ten. And Game of Thrones does the same thing. And the only reason that's able to happen is because it's so easy for people to binge and catch up. Yeah. So you're right. Technologically and budgetary, they could have done it. You know, anytime after Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Culturally, and you know, like the workflow of a general audience. Uh, yeah, I think you got a strong point there, Jim. And so does the emailer. <laughs> Alexander F., how old is Bran supposed to be at the end of Season 7? Eight. In general, how old are any of these characters? It's all, That's a really good question. I, I have, have a, a really hard time answer. keeping it straight. I, how old are they in the books? Uh, I'm not a book reader, but I've listened to enough of your blather. Blather? Blather, you say, to know about these book characters being very, very young. For example, Dan. I think you just called Gizmo Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> Bla- what was his thing? Blathering Blathers, guys. There you go. Um, okay. So the consensus seems to be about two and a half to three and a half years have elapsed from A Game of Thrones to the very end of Dance of Dragons, which is in huh. the five going on six season. So okay. maybe another six months on top of that. Um, but the weird thing is, in fact, if you if you want to know the comprehensive answer of how much time has passed, uh, Google search most precise a Song of Ice and Fire timeline because it will direct you to a Google Doc that has every canonical statement that's tied to a date in the books, and they lay them out in sequential, and so you can see like all the different events and roughly what year and month they are. Um. And that's that's helpful. That's why you go two and a half, three, three and a half, because uh, the show's gone a little bit further. But the problem is, George, when he wrote a Game of Thrones, planned this to be a trilogy that in the middle there'd be a five year skip ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he started out with, uh, you know, Bran starts off the series as uh, eight, and Arya's nine, and Sansa's eleven, um, and like John and Rob are fifteen. 
Um, so his idea was, you know, when we jumped ahead and told the rest of the story that these would all be, you know, grown adults or, you know, more like, like seasoned. Um, and that did, he, he started writing feast and dance, realized he couldn't really connect those characters together. Like it would be preposterous to just like, uh, flash forward and now Ari is a faceless man and flash forward. And now Danny went from being this, you know, jumped up slave girl who had three miraculous dragons to a queen ruling her own right and john maybe jarring most jarring of all went from this kind of like whiny brat who on a lark went and joined the wildlings to the lord commander of the, the night's watch yeah. and yeah <laughs> so he's like ah oh, shit so i have to start filling this out which which made the time jump impossible so you still have you know, John. John is now you know sixteen or seventeen, and Danny is in sixteen, and Bran is like ten. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's weird things like I feel like that Bran and Mira are supposed to have a relationship, like a teenage relationship, but Bran is only ten years old. In the book, so it doesn't doesn't really doesn't really work. It's like an Anakin Padme thing in the first Star Wars. So, sure. um, I mean, the the right answer is two and a half to three years, but I think that with both the books. And the show, you're supposed to understand that number one in like medieval times, four, thirteen and fourteen year olds are starting to they they'd be looking to get married and settle settle down. Mm-hmm. So like everyone's kind of more mature than you think, and also you're supposed to have in the back of your mind that 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 Martin originally intended to have this five year jump. So everyone's slightly older than you think they are. Yeah, but it's kind of which kind of works out in the show because, because that they are five or six years older than they right, were at the beginning. Right. Even though in in universe not that much time has yeah. elapsed, and there's also a lot of weird like 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 um, uh, Sam and um, Gilly's baby uh-huh. is still a baby for five seasons, even though you know Isaac Hempstead Wright went from being ten years old to twenty seven. Sure, so <laughs> it's it's a little jarring, but that's uh-huh. that's the best answer I can give you. Uh, Stephanie asked some questions about the faceless men. Jacken tells Arya that the many-faced gods demand assassination of specific people, and he punishes Arya when she fails to follow through. He admonishes her by saying a servant doesn't get to choose who dies. But then who really does get to choose? Is there some sort of screening process, or are they just assassins for hire for anyone and everyone who can pay their fee? Is there a deeper meaning to who is supposed to die? If regular people are giving the faceless men their assignments, how does the many-faced gods factor into all this? Are they really working for their god or just to turn a profit? Are there ever situations in which a faceless man are allowed to choose a target? Do you, I, yeah, so this is super interesting because like, when I was doing the research for the pod pack podcast that we did where we talked about the religions of Westeros, the many-faced god worshippers, the faceless men were one of those, those factions. Right. Um, and it was very – it seemed very dubious to claim that the gods were the ones choosing the deaths when the people who – uh, were commissioning these assassinations were coming directly to the faceless men and the faceless men were deciding what they would charge essentially like what is this death worth uh-huh. and I don't know if they have some kind of ritual communion with what they would call the many faced god um, in order to determine that I don't I don't know what their rituals around that are but it, it seems that they just take a look at the situation and say this is what we're going to charge this they will sometimes even deny a request to assassinate someone. So I I think I think they're really the ones choosing here. Well, I mean, I think the faceless men would say that 
in as much as God is in control of all things and all men die, that a person coming with a contract is that is a physical manifestation of the will of the many face gods. Sure. Sure. But how do they decide how much to charge? How do they decide when they deny a request? Well, they do have, you mentioned a ritual, like uh, for what I could tell once a month, the faceless men meet at the house of black and white Mm-hmm. And they consider all their open contracts, and then they match up the contracts with the the assassins that they have available. Okay. And they set the price. It's like I don't, I don't think they're like, oh, well, this is a king wanting a princess die, so let's charge fifty million gold dragons. It's more like we have to, we will consider anything. We just the price is it's like a sliding scale, and the price is always extremely dear. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a poor miller. But that's still an evaluation that they're making. Yeah, but it's based on it's not based on the worthiness of the request. It's based on the person's means. Sure. Sometimes so, they will flat out deny it, though. Had did you see that in research? Because yeah. I didn't. I I, I that's, didn't. That's see. what I read on in the wiki, but I don't, huh. I don't know how accurate that is. I haven't read the books or anything. Okay, because I was just reading in the the world of ice and fire, because I, I, I just assumed they wouldn't ever deny a contract. They would probably the mm. you know people a lot of people get the price and then get cold feet. Well, here's uh, I. I don't know. The other thing that they do clearly that we see Jack and do in these in this season is they will claim that the faceless god had the right to those deaths and mm-hmm. that Arya took them and now somehow she gets to name them, name mm-hmm. the people who will be their replacements. Right. Uh I don't I don't know how that works either. Yeah. I, I mean I understand the mechanics by which they're operating, but I don't Right. I don't understand how they justify it within their religion. Well, it's because I, I think it's it's more like so one of their so one of their co- their their other core principles is the assassin himself cannot choose the target. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the assassin cannot know their target. Like an assassin can turn it down. It's like, oh, I actually went to school with that guy. So <laughs> okay, you know, because I like you know they they're very against personal connections there have to be no one well if that's a personal yeah. relationship then that could violate their thing so i i think it's more like jack and like uh, the red god needs uh, the, the mini face god needs his his kills my scriptural restrictions say i can't just kill three dudes for the hell of it so i need you i have this debt you could be like my you know you you can as not a faceless man be the person that hands out my contracts and i fulfill them mm-hmm. so it's like you know a little little spiritual loophole but no, I do think that the the mini face the 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 the, the faceless men see the contract system as because you know your god's either got power or he doesn't. Sure, it should be trivial for him to navigate who comes to you and guide you, you know, through this uh, this meeting process and vetting process to to come up with the right answer. You mm-hmm. know, just like people, shit, I just talked to a woman that said that. Uh, she drove through an intersection in the winter and she couldn't stop and she went through this busy intersection. She just closed her eyes and said a prayer and she woke up and she's on the ditch on the other side, miraculously safe. Was God handing that? Like, uh, uh-huh. I think if God th- can guide your car, right. Then he really doesn't need assassins. <laughs> sure. Sure. Probably do the killing himself. But then see, I mean, that's like of all religions has answers to that. Like, yes, God can do everything himself, but he's giving you the opportunity to, uh-huh. you know, to try out for the God squad. Right. Like, like that gives your life life meaning. And mm. if you're as nihilistic a fuck as the average <laughs> faceless man, that's probably pretty nice to think okay. that you're, you know, you're giving God a solid. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I don't know. I wonder what they, because the other thing is like, I, the other question I have now is like, what is their concept of an afterlife? Are they going to have a better place because they serve the mini face God? Or is this, since nothing means anything, helping people to grave early is the best thing you can do? Yeah, I think it's a lot like the Lord of Light situation where he views, um, the, the followers of Lord of Light view Westeros, view Planetos, I guess, or life as a hell that right. they are freeing people from by burning yep. them um, and sending them to the other place, which is death. Even if the other place is, is in nothingness, it's still a respite from hell. So Right. Uh, just to know, as another follow-up on the old faceless men here, after the talking up of Jacken that you guys did last episode, I feel like it's necessary to point out that his kills are by no means guaranteed. No faceless men's are guaranteed. Not for that as far matter. as I've seen. Yeah, if they were to fail, presumably die under failure, the mini face gods still get their death. When the waif sets out to kill Arya and Bravos with Jacken's approval, she's the one claimed by death. I feel like the promise that is made when the name is given is just that—a promise. As an additional note, this could explain why Jacken lets Arya go peacefully from the House of Black and White. The waif was dead, the mini-faced god received their due, and there is no reason to pursue the matter further. It's also why I think that, in the show at least, we have seen the last of Jack and Hagar and the Faceless Men. Hmm. Okay, that's fairly compelling. Yeah, it's, very comp- it's fairly compelling, but again, the Faceless Men are mysterious enough that we really don't understand all that makes them tick. That's and, true. But yeah, I never really thought of it that way, that like, well, the mini-faced god got his kill, mm-hmm. and if the waif wasn't able to kill Arya, then the mini-faced god must not have wanted it to happen yet. Yeah. So there you go. It's just like Melisandre keeps saying when people are ex- amazed that they're still alive, well, the red god must still want you alive. Mm-hmm. And if you're dead, then the red god is done with you. It's tidy. Tidy how that belief is, system yeah. works. Pretty convenient. Uh, Mary P. from Minnesota. What happened to the shadow baby after it killed Rinley? Did it just evaporate? Yeah. Can Melisandre make another one? Yeah. I know there isn't much entertainment value for a shadow to kill all the kings, so maybe it's just a convenient one and done, but is there more explanation in the books on how this magic system works? No. No? <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, uh, you maybe because you're right. Like, this, like, Stannis could just, like, okay, well, I can, I can do this more. Now, the books have a couple systems that every time that Melisandre uses up a bit of Stannis to do this magic, he gets frailer and weaker looking. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he was noticeably aged after this shadow baby, and then she uses, uh, you know, these, these leech-filled king's blood things to, uh, like like, murder the other kings, essentially, in this ritual. Um, and she gets to a point where she can't really doesn't feel like she can take from Stannis anymore because it's going gonna, it's gonna to diminish him. And I, so I think that's the... She needs royal blood and royal seed to make this work, and it's not like, you know, hey, he busts a nut inside Melisandre and he's good to go in 16 hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more like that's something spiritually done to him that can't... Like a part of his soul is gone. I feel uh, like she could have maybe used Gendry for that a little bit more. Yeah, he could have. He seemed like he was no worse for the wear. Yeah, he's he's a strapping young lad. He could sure. handle it. A couple of shadow <laughs> babies, at least. If if they had if they had uh, perfected Viagra in Westeros, maybe yeah. maybe the War of Five Kings would have been done in in, in uh, the course I, of an <laughs> evening's work. I think you just put a leech on the tip and just draw the blood all to the surface. Just the tip. You, yeah, just the tip. Okay. You want to draw the blood specifically? That's what all the kings say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, but but honestly, that's something I remember contemporaneously we were talking about, like, 
could she have like a howitzer come out of there? Yeah. An M one Abrams, an aircraft mm-hmm. carrier, like Touche, could she give Shadow Twins? Like what's what's the limitations? And you know, like Dragon. a lot of a lot of magical systems, there aren't any until the author establishes them and you know, Martin for good or ill as keep keeps us very mysterious. Hmm. Um we don't get very many POV insights into Melisandre and, and what she's thinking and, and feeling and, and very few, even fewer of guys like the faceless men and, and, and the warlocks of Karth and to know like how much of their shit is flim flam and how much of it's true blue. We know it's like with Melisandre, it's a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you're, it's, it's still kind of up in the air. Uh, Sean K. For the longest time, I was convinced Jamie's going to kill Cersei and fulfill the Volunkar prophecy. It's so often discussed on the podcast. But at the end of Season 7, with him riding away from King's Landing as it started to snow, it's led me to believe that this may never occur. I do think that Jamie will fight in a great war against the White Walkers and will very likely die in the process, but I think he will be the one to actually kill the Ice Dragon. We've already seen Jamie having the balls or the stupidity to try to charge a Drogon, but I also like the symmetry this brings to other storylines with him. As we learned earlier, that the story of Jaime as the Kingslayer is misunderstood and was in fact a very selfless act, saving thousands from wildfire at the expense of his honor. Since the Mad King was a Targaryen, Jaime's already a quote-unquote dragon slayer. I think that Jaime will find an opportunity to attack the Ice Dragon and the Night King's rider and will successfully kill the dragon, likely with his sword Oathkeeper. The Night King will survive and fight and eventually kill Jaime, but his intervention somehow saves Jon Snow and the others from being killed. This will fulfill Jamie's arc, which started in season one as a rich, selfish asshole to become one who embodies the true values of a knight. The most satisfying things about this theory would be after it all happens, maybe with Sam telling his whole story Frodo Baggins style years later, they referenced the book of all those in the Kingsguard and their list of achievements with Jamie's page being filled out with some badass dragon slaying instead of just being the Kingslayer. I love that because fuck you, Joffrey, there is still time. Which mm-hmm. is the quote that Jamie said when Joffrey's making fun of his very short yeah. chapter in the book of the Kingsguard. Um, I don't normally read like these kind of theories, but I thought that there was a little bit of like textual and um, narrative meat to these bones. Yeah, what do you that's think? that's the context in which we usually talk about Jamie is the narrative impact that different I, 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 different events would happen. Right? right now, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I think he could be okay. The dragon slayer and and uh, a, you know kill kill a sister as well. But I do like the idea that since he's already kind of slain a Targaryen, a dragon, mm-hmm. uh, and there was this jab at like, oh, you just don't have any great works in your book yet, and him saying there's still time. That would that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty good arc. I just don't know how he's going to get to the dragon, the the blue eyes white dragon. I Why? don't know. Like, is it going to be sitting on the ground? Because John's got dibs on that second dragon. I hate to tell you, the 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 only other yeah. available dragon is going to be ridden by John. So, I don't know where he's going to get a a sky faring apparatus. Well, the dragon might like land on the ground, similar yeah. to what happened okay. with uh, Danny. Now that dragon was I don't like know how you wounded. Wound, yeah, I don't know how you wound. An yeah, it seems like dragon. You either hit him with a Valerian spear <laughs> right. or a. a a, a, a obsidian spear and it just burst into snowflakes or he's invincible yeah you hit him with a spear and he just doesn't even care because he's dead right uh but i like sneak up on him i like the While i like the drinking <laughs> right 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 <laughs> uh i like i like the narrative i like the narrative mechanics yeah. of the theory mm-hmm. it's pretty good uh brad w 
I've been trying to figure out why Ned never told Kat about the truth regarding John. I've tried to understand this, but can't figure it out. Can he not trust his wife with the truth? Why would he think, allow her to think that he was unfaithful and allow her to treat John that way, knowing it would be different if he just knew the truth? I understand not telling John because children don't keep secrets very well, but not his own wife? He's got to betray someone in this scenario, right? Um, if he if he doesn't tell Catelyn, he's sort of betraying her. Mm-hmm. He's proving that he doesn't trust her quite as much as he could. Uh, but if he does tell her, he's betraying his dead sister, right? Right. So he's stuck. I, I feel like Ned does not have a good a good operating uh, mode coming out of this. Yeah, I mean this that, promise to tell no one. Yeah, like any average person, you, me, everybody would probably tell their wife because I, I think so. Yeah, otherwise, especially once the sister is dead, right? Because betraying her is like, eh, okay, right. But I trust this person enough that I, they will not say anything. But we're not talking about an average person. We're talking about fucking yeah. Ned Stark here, who I don't think saw any way to square that that yeah. that lie, like. Uh, you know, promise me, Ned, that you'll keep this guy, kids safe. If there's a chance that that cat would betray, or even subconsciously, like the fact that cat, there's a friction there, mm-hmm. sells this lie. It does, and it that 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 lie keeps John safe from not just like you know whoever would want a Targaryen, but you know Robert Baratheon. Hates all Targaryens and would like. I don't know that Ned thinks that he could stop him if he knew that he was actually the 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 legitimate son of of Rhaegar Targaryen. Um, so having Cat be <laughs> such a shit to John is a little bit of armor for him. Uh, what about Howland Reed? What about him? So Howland Reed is like the wild Not sure card. Exists. He might just this... be a figment of Ned's imagination at this point. I, I seriously, he was in the scene with him, so I seriously doubt it. Um, Ned was he, high on Poppy. He knows. He yeah. knows about Jon Snow's parentage. So he wasn't in the Tower of Joy, as far as I saw. I only saw Ned climb those stairs. Right. So Ned must have come down and told him. Well, right? first of all. I don't think there's any textual evidence that Howland Reed knows that he actually that, like knows. like people think that like as the only survivors of the Tower of Joy and the close relationship that that Howland Reed had to Ned going back to See, their children days that's that, fucked up though because now you're saying you're really gonna tell me that the relationship between Ned and Howland is more beloved to him than the relationship between him and Catelyn. Well, I'm not because again, I I don't I can't think of I I don't know that. I mean, it's always been like a speculation of like, well, how, who knows, who could possibly know uh, the secret of John and like Howland was there sure, and yeah. he was close friends with, but you're right. That like, is speculative. There, and and I, as far as I know, there's not anything where it hints that like absolutely Howland knew the truth. Okay. Uh, Maybe he didn't tell Howland. Maybe he just comes down with this baby and right. Howland's like, what the fuck? I mean, obviously in the show, I mean, it's, I think it's telling that, I mean. And he goes, I, I banged somebody. I was up there for a while. Right. It was, it's been about nine months, Howland. Well, he, he, so, the, so there's the, that's, that's why he can't because yeah, he can't, he's got a baby. Right. He comes down those stairs with a baby and Howland's like, where'd you get that baby? That's, so I think that's thing. I think it's pretty certain that Howland probably knows because he had to. He had to, yeah. Whereas his wife, he's been gone for almost a year on this campaign and he comes back and he's got he's got this baby 
Right. So he can lie. He can lie to protect John with it. With Howland, you, you, you can't. So, like I said, it's it's, yeah, it's it's brutal. And it's not something I think that you're designed to understand or sympathize with. But they he spends yeah. a lot of the story telling you how fucking pig-headed and how seriously Ned takes promises and vows. Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially the dying sisters, you know, like that just that just like, you know, the 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 the, the most important vow a person can take in his mind. Mm-hmm. So there you go. It's not that I don't think he he she trusts Kat. It's more of, you know, he just is desperate to because because how could he ever forgive himself if something he did allowed John's identity to be got out and then Robert has him killed or he has to go to war against Robert to protect. I mean, there's nothing good can come of John's identity yeah. being revealed. There are a lot of reasons not to. I think I think not that's, a lot of reasons to tell her. I think that's one of the reasons where Ned says to John, like, you know, we'll talk about your mother when you when I when I get back, because in that context, the one thing that could save John is being at the wall. You know, hmm. okay. that like and no everyone respects the fact that, you know, when you take the vows, you give up any kind of claim on the throne. You because shit, there's already a Targaryen up there, Aemon. Uh-huh. So I feel like that Ned thinks that if he got that he could say, like, hey, by the way, you have I mean he could tell him the whole truth and he would be beyond everyone's wrath. Um I've yeah. always wondered what that conversation would be like though, because you know, John's like, well, thanks for telling me, not dad. I'm stuck here at the wall. Maybe I wanted to go adventure and try to take back the, you know, what happens if, you know, imagine if Robert died and Joffrey's taken the throne. He's a terrible king. Like, that'd probably stick in your craw, knowing that maybe you could have done better and you, it was your throne, your your rightful throne in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, that's all. That's all we got. Okay. Game of Thrones at baldmove.com if you'd like to send in more feedback. Again, forums.baldmove.com if you'd like to uh, check out that community. And you can also follow us all along on social media. Uh, thanks for continuing to rewatch with us. We'll be back for the next episode next week. Uh, until then, I'm Aaron. I'm Jim. See ya.